I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more readable and engaging books is uh, Heroin and Illustrated History. Its uh, author Susan Boyd joins me now. In the book, she uh, takes a historical look at heroin regulation over two centuries from when the opioid was discovered in 1898 to today. She looks at the political policies that criminalize and pathologize drug users, leading to a failure today of addressing the uh, overdose uh, death epidemic. She looks uh, critically at the evidence as to the harm of heroin and how its uh, prohibition has been uh, tied up with colonization and systemic racism, as well as class and gender injustice. Susan also looks at the cultural history of heroin, from its uh, early use to its uh, depiction in popular culture, like films going back to uh, 1930s uh, movies like uh, Narcotic and Reefer Madness, to later films like Sinatra in The Man with a Golden Arm, and uh, Panic in Needle Park, which uh, co-stars Al Pacino. There's remarkable cartoons and art that's showcased in the book that shows how the public was influenced. Susan C. Boyd is uh, a scholar and activist and distinguished professor emerita at the University of Victoria. Her previous book was uh, Busted, an Illustrated History of Drug Prohibition in Canada. This uh, book is from Fernwood Publishing. We spoke last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Susan Boyd. Professor Boyd, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, as you write in the book, you've been interested in heroin regulation for, for, for over 10 years now. Is that right? Yes. Um, what was the impetus to, to, to then, say, uh, take your, your, your work and your interest in, in scholarship, obviously, and, and write a book like this? I mean, it's a, it's a terribly engaging book um, and an important one. Why did you write it? I think there was a, a number of um, uh, factors that led me to write the book, but two are quite important, and that was um, starting in 2011, I was invited by a uh, group, uh, peer-led group out of uh, Vandu, the Vancouver mm-hmm. Area Network of Drug Users. They called themselves the Naomi Patients Association. They met once a week there. They had just started up. Everybody that was in this group had been a research subject in the Naomi clinical trial, which mm-hmm. is a heroin-assisted treatment trial. And when the trial ended, though, um, they were left to their own devices again. But one of the criteria to be part of the trial was that they um, had failed conventional treatments like abstinence-based treatments or methadone maintenance treatment. And so a permanent program, heroin-assisted treatment program, wasn't set up for these research subjects, even though the study um, found that psychological and physical health improved, that People no longer had to be in contact with the legal uh, drug market. Mm-hmm. You know, there's improvements on many levels. So they met together once a week because they're the only people in contemporary Canadian history that have received her and assisted treatment. And they wanted to tell their own story about what their experience had been as a research subject in this clinical trial. But also uh, they wanted to inform the public and politicians about HAT and how they felt that it could be one more tool in the toolbox. Um, But at the same time um, that they invited me to come work with them, and that collaboration lasted for um, over 10 years, Mm -hmm. the poison drug supply started to become apparent, and that was through 
um, illegal drug overdose deaths. And we saw this incredible rise in deaths um, over the last decade and more. And so I couldn't understand, even though BC had um, proclaimed a public health emergency in 2016, why heroin assisted treatment wasn't expanded throughout BC and the rest of Canada um, as just one more effective tool to try to um, curtail the deaths, the so many deaths. And so that really was my impetus to look more closely at the regulation of heroin um, to try to understand, come to some understanding about why it's such a boogeyman um, type of drug, why there's so many myths and yeah. misunderstandings about the drug um, as well. And, you know, I've been researching Canadian drug policy for you know almost 30 years now. And, of course, I knew something about the regulation of heroin, but I wanted to look more deeply um, into the events. And also, because it was an illustrated book, I wanted to find you know, important um, illustrations or images uh, that were signified, you know, event that was important in our history around drug control. So that's what brought me into the uh, book. And I guess maybe the third reason was that I saw such amazing resistance to our punitive drug policies, Mm, you know, in relation to harm reduction activists, and their allies, drug user unions, which now exist in Canada, they were on the, and continue to be, at the front line of opening uh, overdose prevention sites, uh, supervised injection sites. And they're, you know, I was amazed by their spirit and their support that they lended um, other people, because often this work with volunteers are very mm-hmm. poorly paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the state, the sort of power and difference between the state, the federal government or provincial government or municipalities, was immense compared to these small groups just setting up a tent, you know, in a park, an unsanctioned overdose prevention site, you know, um, trying to prevent uh, more deaths. And that was the underlying sort of theme for me was that these are preventable deaths. Yeah. And I still don't understand, you know, I wrote the book trying to uh, answer the question of why we didn't do more and why we haven't done more. Um, but it, it still uh, boggles my mind that we haven't um, to this day yeah. dealt with this more effectively. So so when you talk about the crisis now, I mean, the, the yes. legalization of heroin, I mean, that that's key to reducing the number of deaths. In, in terms yes. of, of if you had the, the ability to say... Um, stop this or reduce the, the number of deaths? I mean, what, what would you suggest governments do to, 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 say, make it legal? Yeah, I would do two things. Um, I would look towards, like, in the next week, I would decriminalize um, um, personal possession and uh, small amounts of selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would roll out more effective and diverse and culturally diverse um, substitution program. So that's where we offer a legal, safe drug in replacement of someone using an illegal, unsafe, or poison drug. Um, and then, and that could be quite diverse services from uh, coming into a clinic, a supervised clinic uh, environment, mm-hmm. to compassion clubs. 
But I would also then move towards legal regulation of all currently criminalized drugs. I think we have enough evidence over the last century to demonstrate that criminalizing drugs is you know, a failed policy and that it's created much harm uh, and continues to, and it really contributes to race, class, and gender mm, injustice in right. Canada. So I would do it sort of two-pronged, um, you know, sort of advance. But I think part of that has to be uh, education um, about drugs, about drug policy, you know, different ideas about how they could be effectively regulated. I mean, when we think about our most toxic and dangerous drugs, it's alcohol and tobacco. And we found a way to work with these drugs and people's relationship with them and to use civil fines um, instead of, you know, criminal justice in order to, um, you know, to make sure that people are receiving safe legal drugs and that adults, you know, all of the the uh, factors that are important to us, but, you know, especially education. And most people have not met someone who's using illegal heroin or any other type of narcotic, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so their ideas are coming from, you know, the RCMP, law enforcement, you know, professionals, media, you know, movies, and uh, as well, fictional movies about a person's quick descent into you know, yeah. a criminal life, immoral life, and then, you know, possibly death. But I think if people understood um, that when an individual um, is on her and assisted treatment, that would be a very small minority of people who use drugs, mm-hmm. that they can live a stable and normal life, as they would talk about it. Um, and we have plenty of evidence, not just with the two clinical trials that um, happened in Canada, but also the permanent program that we have. We have three different programs in British Columbia, but also the international studies have been demonstrating, you know, for decades now that if we provide safe legal drugs um, to people, that they can participate in society in the way that they would like to and the way that we would like them to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and our ideas around abstinence and sobriety need to expand. I mean, uh, abstinence for some people, you know, gaining abstinence, I guess, or sobriety for some people is mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. You know, it really does stabilize their life um, and enhances their life. But the same can be said for this small percentage of people um, who were abstinence and methadone maintenance or other you know, uh, drug substitution programs that we have fail them. And the other thing that we can see from the international studies as well is that there is no problem in relation to diversion from these drug substitution programs and that drug use rates don't go up. You know, there's not going to be like an epidemic of heroin Mm, use or hydromorphone use across the nation. You know, people have fears about these drugs because they've been vilified for so long that they have, you know, for the drug heroin, let's say, um, it has therapeutic value not only in relation to drug dependence, but it also has therapeutic value, which is recognized at end-of-life pain management care. Um, and so to broaden our ideas about what drugs are, um, you know, in the 1960s, we had 300 prescription drugs available in Canada mm-hmm. for use, yeah. for a doctor to prescribe. And now we have over 7,000. And so our relationship 
to drugs has changed dramatically. Um, but we don't really have much in the way of drug education yeah. except for, you know, vilifying certain drugs. Um, and that's not very helpful if we want to find out more about the people who use these drugs. Indeed. Um, and, you know, avenues for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do a marvelous job in the book uh, showing us, uh, going back a, a, a century, um, in terms of what has um, worked in terms of, of um, feeding us the, the idea that that this is all bad. Um, mm-hmm. you, the visuals in the book are, are striking. I mean, you use cartoons, propaganda, movie posters. Um, it, yeah. it, it's, it's delightful to, to look as well, and it's charts and the sort. Um, but but it has worked. I mean, the sort of PR campaign um, coupled with, say, um, cultural uh, um, touchstones like uh, movies, mm-hmm. um, the, the movie Narcotic from the 30s, Reefer Madness, of course, um, uh, yeah. the Sinatra movie, Man with a Golden Arm, um, yeah. Panic in Needle Park. Um, the... the um, it's it's very these are very effective tools in terms of, of how the public has reacted to heroin, right? That's right, and I think you know, most of us have been raised in a culture where we have access to magazines, movies, TV. Yeah. You know, we've been informed by these um, these mediums, but most Canadians, you know, we're not going out and doing sort of a scholarly view of the drug um, heroin. Um, it's and so this is where we get our information. We might not have a family member um, who uses um, illegal drugs, um, possibly outside of cannabis, which is legal, you know, as an adult now to use. So it does inform us, and there's certain and the power of imagery. Um, I think is quite important because images stay with us. So there could be even an article that was uh, positive about harm reduction or overdose prevention sites. But they might be, the article might be accompanied by someone, you know, that term, shooting up in a dirty alleyway. Mm. Well, those images stay with us. And so we know if we see a needle in an alleyway, that's bad. But if we see a hypodermic needle in a tray in a hospital setting, we see that as good. So they inform the way we think. And it's quite enduring, these images as well. When you look back in history, you start to see similar images over and over and over again. And right away, we associate those images either with like degradation or immorality, yeah. mm-hmm. or we see them as positive and good. So I wanted to incorporate those images because I think they're so important, not only um, in terms of what we bring to that image to understand it, but they can also provide an alternative narrative, um, one of resistance as well, and one of a different um, point of view about the drug heroin, who the, the people are who use mm-hmm. it or reduce it. So, um, and I also, I wrote another book called Busted, and it was published in 2017, and that looked at drug prohibition as a whole in Canada. And one of the reasons I included images and illustrations in that book, too, was I thought the images might entice a person <laughs> to come look at the book. Mm. They might not have any interest in drug policy, per se, um, but I was hoping that the images might draw people in and then to take a look at the accompanying text. Um, and the point was to write a book that was accessible for the lay reader, not just scholars, um, mm. 
but for you know from a teenager on um, could understand this history that we're not taught in school. Well, how did you choose the the image on the cover? Because you you, you have you, just flipping through the book, um, someone could find something that they would want to put on the cover instead. But but I mean, it it is an effective. Uh, um, I guess that's that's an an early manufactured um, bottle of tablets. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a small bottle of uh, legal heroin. Um, by Lilly um, and Company, a pharmaceutical company. And I chose that image because in the book I was trying to find a balance. I didn't want to romanticize the drug heroin in any way. I mean, it's a potent drug like most narcotics are. But I also didn't want to demonize it. And I wanted to just look at what I might call the facts in our sort of social cultural history. And so I chose what I thought was... uh, an image of heroin that uh, did not romanticize or demonize, and we just see it as, oh, okay, this is a drug that was legally available to Canadians and you know in other countries as well, mm-hmm. and remained available. Um, you know, Canada has its own specific history around the regulation of heroin, but in many countries, let's say the UK, doctors always had the uh, right to prescribe heroin to their patients right up until today. Um, that wasn't so in Canada because right, heroin was prescribed to people in Canada right up into the 1950s. It was illegal or non-medical use of heroin that was criminalized mm. in the early 1900s. But in other countries, that wasn't so. So in Canada, law enforcement or the narcotic division um, criminalized doctors, Canadian doctors, from prescribing legal, safe heroin to anyone who was labeled addicted. And we didn't set up drug treatment centers, nor do we set up like narcotic clinics or heroin clinics for people to uh, be provided a legal source of narcotics. And the U.S. did that for a couple of years after they criminalized um, non-medical use of heroin and other narcotics. Right up until the early 1960s, we didn't even have publicly funded drug treatment available for Canadians. So overnight, you know, a small group of people became um, criminals. But doctors could prescribe heroin up into the mid-1950s for therapeutic use to what they would refer to as Mm non-addicts. And it wasn't until the mid-1950s that uh, a ban was enacted um, banning legal heroin into Canada. So basically it meant that physicians couldn't prescribe heroin, legal heroin, to their patients anymore because it wasn't available in the pharmacy. Um, And that didn't change until the 1980s when Dr. Ken Walker literally Mm. ran a campaign to be able to provide that drug to end-of-life patients, and the ban was lifted. But again, there was the problem. There was no longer a domestic um, pharmaceutical company in Canada that produced the drug. And so it was literally impossible to use it. So it wasn't until, you know, recently mm-hmm. that we're seeing again some interest in um, heroin as a legal safe drug that might um, be beneficial for end-of-life pain management or, uh, you know, other um, 
issues, but also in relation to using it as a substitution drug for that small minority of people where conventional drug treatments fail them. You, you, you write in the book um, about uh, what, what ha- what's, what's happened in this part of the world, not just in the present, but in, in the past. You mentioned Ocala Prison uh, for, for a lot yes. of us. Um, that, um, well, that, that's a prison, I guess, in Burnaby that's, that's uh, been gone for over 30 years now. Um, yes. What did they do there, and, and, and what's interesting or, or, um, uh, in term, uh, or um, necessary to know in, in terms of uh, what they did in, term, uh, in terms of, of how they, they uh, treated people there? Yeah, they, in the 1950s, um, Ocala Prison Farm um, established uh, an experimental prison drug treatment program. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in essence, our first drug treatment programs were in prisons, not outside of prison, you know, in sort of our regular environment. Um, And in this program, it was done uh, with some UBC um, scholars as well. Um, They divided the prisoners up, and some people went to this sort of research unit um, of the prison that would... They did basically like group therapy um, with the prisoners um, there in the 1950s. You know, it was found not to be very effective. You know, they segregated what they considered addicts and non-addicts. Um, and their, uh, one of the concerns was at that time in the 50s, they thought that white middle-class youth might be lured into mm. heroin use. Um, and interestingly enough, like when we think about our drug history too, it was really the heroin user that was the focus of police profiling and the narcotic division profiling and also research profiling. Um, you know, of course, some people who use cocaine or other drugs were criminalized as well, but they were really sort of the heroin user was sort of the model of what they called the criminal addict. And that's who they were addressing in this um, experimental prison drug treatment um, unit, this criminal addict that they thought was a criminal first and a drug user secondarily. Mm. And so even if you provided them treatment or substitution drug, they would still remain a threat to society because they were criminals. But at the unit um, at Ocala, they were trying to identify who these criminal addicts or heroin addicts were um, and to work with them um, through experimental drug treatment so that they would come out of prison as sober citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it didn't work. Um, let's put it that way. Yeah. There, was a, there was very little difference, and it was a very rigid um, program, uh, difficult for the prisoners. You know, prison is a place where... Um, People rarely share, you know, insight uh, about their own lives. And in the program, you know, the psychiatrists were trying to get the prisoners to talk about their lives and why they had become delinquent and, you know, to try to insert sort of more moral Christian um, belief system or framework for the prisoners. And the, the, you mentioned law enforcement's part in that. The media, um, the, the press of the day, that, that plays a part. I mean, you, you talk about Jack Webster, especially in terms of, of how he covered this topic. Yes, yes. I had done a separate uh, 
research project looking at radio shows mm-hmm. in uh, in Canada, and um, I also looked at fictional films in Canada, U.S., and the U.K. I was very interested in this whole idea of you know what the public gets to, um, where the knowledge producers are, and where the public gets their information about drugs. And Jack Webster really was um, a big proponent of the criminal addict and mm. criminal justice as a solution to the now newly formed drug problem. And what's interesting about his shows, I found, was that there might be a person who had used heroin on the show, and they might actually even say that, um, uh, offer a solution, you know, if um, if I was offered safe heroin, you know, in a program, I could live a normal life and mm-hmm. not be in prison, you know, most of my life. But Jack Webster would then, you know, interject and say, well, of course, you know, they want free heroin, but let's mm-hmm. talk to a, profes- a professional. And that professional would then um, tell the public that these were people who were both criminal and pathological and that the solution to their problem was abstinence, Mm. Um, and if not, they couldn't maintain that prison. And at that time, um, we had passed our 1961 Narcotic Act, and it's one of the most punitive drug laws in the world, and it was seven years, up to seven years for possession of a small amount of heroin, and life imprisonment for Mm. trafficking heroin. And so a judge doesn't necessarily give that full uh, penalty, but they could. And for many people, it was just smaller, um, um, you know, nonviolent crimes. I want to emphasize that, Mm -hmm. that sort of snowball into a much larger time in prison. Um, And so that was the, all through the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and into the 1960s, the person who used heroin was seen as this criminal addict that you could not redeem, but the mm. best you could hope for is that they would remain sober, um, and if not, throw them in prison. And, you know, there's even RCMP officers who wrote articles about, um, you know, they should they should be given, you know, um, put on islands and segregated from everybody else that um, possibly that, you know, they should be murdered, um, you know, in the electric chair. You know, terrible, um, I guess you could say that in some ways drug prohibition created a drug problem. And then they, you know, uh, the Narcotic Division and um, RCMP and their annual reports created solutions that were so punitive. And when you look at even convictions of uh, heroin convictions across Canada... You can see in the 30s, 40s, 50s that there was no widespread problem whatsoever. Um, and I know we can't go by drug convictions totally, sure. you know, in yeah. relation to drug use rates. But let's say um, in 1954 there were like 340 total drug convictions, and almost 90% were for possession, which is how it goes in Canada. Most you know drug offenses are for possession. But of that total drug convictions, 95 were for heroin, and 90% were for possession. So all I'm trying to say here is that it was a very small number of people, even though there was so much 
you know, police profiling, yeah. files kept on every known person to use heroin in Canada or other drugs, um, huge budgets, um, but it was mostly for possession and for heroin possession. And it wasn't until the late 1960s that we see that huge shift where the profiling is for cannabis, you know, which um, you know, was associated with the sort of counterculture yeah. movement and the taking up of cannabis by uh, white youth here in Canada and others. But the level of marginalization and discrimination is tremendous through history on this small group of people. And in the book, I'm arguing that if we look back even at the Indian Act, it was our first sort of punitive drug control um, policy that was put in place in 1876. And part of the provision was the criminalization of non-medical use of alcohol and opiate intoxicants, including heroin. And then we took that same punitive framework of a Christian temperance, white supremacist framework, and applied it to our second uh, drug law, which was um, in 1908, and that was basically to criminalize the smoking of opium, which was associated with Chinese Canadians Mm, in Canada. And then we see, you know, this terrible profiling, not only of indigenous people, but of uh, Chinese Canadians, you know, complete disenfranchisement. Um, The few opium dens are closed, and some people start to use illegal heroin, illegal morphine, and Mm -hmm. um, cocaine. And a shift, then, in police profiling, a shift in the Narcotic Division, the RCMP, and the report to talk about heroin as the number one demon drug um, in Canada and the one uh, that police should be aware of. So it's interesting to look at that framework that we've continued on to today. I mean, the yeah. rupture started happening more forcefully in the 1990s with our first um, overdose uh, crisis in the Lower Mainland of Vancouver um, and B.C., but um, most of our resources are still going to criminal justice, yeah. and we know as well that, you know, the race injustice, you know, uh, is immense in overrepresentation in our prisons, um, but also in drug offenses, overrepresentation of black people and indigenous people, even though drug use rates are very similar yeah, yeah. for these groups. So, and we've, you know, more recently heard about discrimination in our healthcare services towards indigenous people. Right. And in relation to child apprehension, we know that poor women, black women, indigenous women, um, are profiled by child protection and, um, social services. Um, especially in relation to seeing their children at risk if they use um, an illegal drug. And so I wanted to trace that history because, you know, we might think about it, oh, you know, we need to uh, reform the law. We need to change the law. We need to have more just laws. But I wanted to demonstrate that it's more than just the law. The law informs our health policies, Mm -hmm. you know, whether a doctor could prescribe a substitution drug or not the type of services that we have, whether we can actually open um, uh, overdose prevention site or supervised um, injection site, um, whether or not 
a person can receive methadone or not, um, but that it also informs housing policy, child protection policy, you know, all these other institutions um, that most often when it comes to drug policy are distinctly race, class, and gender unjust. Um, and so I wanted to make that evident in the book, this history of injustice. Um, but like all laws and policy, they're made by humans. Yeah. And that resistance has always played a big part. And we can actually see right from the 1950s on that groups um, challenged our drug laws and policies and called for the setting up of heroin clinics um, right from the 1940s on. And then, as I said, that, you know, a larger movement in the 1990s, because that was the first time that people who used drugs came together, you know, and formed a peer-led group that were quite vocal and political about their experiences in relation to drug prohibition and yeah. how they would like us to change. And, you know, before individual people who had used drugs, like we're on a show, like with Jack Webster, but they were really, if they didn't um, embrace abstinence or sobriety, you know, as uh, their goal, they were just denigrated on the show. Um, yeah. So the drug user unions and harm reduction activists and their allies, that was a real shift um, in bringing their voice to the table um, and acknowledging their experience um, that they have expertise in relation to um, accessing services, health services, um, and you know have expertise in relation to what might be a path forward that would be more just. Susan, this is such an important book. Um, I, I hope a lot of people read it because I, I think it might uh, just change some minds and and then uh, eventually save lives. Uh, congratulations on writing the book and, and uh, good luck with it. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. And I appreciate you inviting me to talk with you. The book is called Heroin and Illustrated History. It's from Fernwood Publishing. Its author, Susan Boyd, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunto.